Where is Pancake's house? What? We stop at Pancake's house. I'm sure the vast majority of anybody listening to this will surely have seen James Cameron's 1984 epic, The Terminator. In the final scene, Sarah Connor has just finished gassing up her kick-ass Jeep Renegade, and she begins driving towards the coming storm. As she shrinks down towards the horizon, the frame begins to fade out, and before we even make it to a full black, a title card appears that reads, with acknowledgement to the works of Harlan Ellison. Well. Who is Harlan Ellison, and why should we acknowledge his works? Official writing credits go to Cameron himself, as well as Gail Ann Hurd, so to find out, we're going to have to use the Time Displacement Unit to travel back in time and see what's going on here. Alright, so let's go on and get completely naked and step inside with me. Your clothes. Give them to me, now. The year is now 1981, and we're in Rome, Italy. Cameron is here to promote his directorial debut film, Piranha 2, The Spawning. Cameron is feeling ill in his hotel room when he claims to have a fever dream in which he sees, quote, a metal figure coming out of a fire, dragging itself across a floor with kitchen knives. Cameron goes on to fantasize about producing a very stylistic horror slasher film starring his brand new nightmare. That's pretty cool, I guess, James Cameron literally dreaming up the Terminator, but where did all the other angles that we find in the film come from? The post-apocalyptic future war, the soldier sent back through time, even the concept of using the arm as a plot device as well as a CPU. I don't recall seeing any of those angles in interviews with Cameron when talking about how he came up with the Terminator, just the robotic exoskeleton crawling around. So, now that James is awake and taking big fever dumps with his notebook in the bathroom, let's head over to 1964 and check out a brand new episode of the weekly sci-fi anthology, The Outer Limits. Tonight is the premiere episode of Season 2, titled Soldier, written by sci-fi novelist Harlan Ellison. While there is no killer robot angle in this episode, the rest of it does seem a little familiar. Two emotionless enemy soldiers are sent back through time where one of them discovers emotions and sacrifices his life for the greater good. Check out this intro narration that plays over a shot of a future war where futuristic laser beams dart into a dark, murky horizon. A soldier stands overlooking the war zone and he smokes a cigarette as he does so. Night comes too soon on the battlefield. For some men it comes permanently, their eyes never open to the light of day. But for this man, fighting this war, there is never total darkness. The spidery beams of light in the sky are the descendants of the modern laser beam. Heat rays that sear through tungsten steel and flesh as though they were cheesecloth. And this soldier must go against those weapons. His name is Quarlo and he is a foot soldier, the ultimate infantryman. Trained from birth by the state, he has never known love, or closeness, or warmth. 
he is geared for only one purpose, to kill the enemy. And the enemy waits for him. Visually, when you look at this scene over the opening few shots of the Terminator, there is absolutely no question whatsoever that Cameron was watching this episode when trying to write a plot around his crawling fire robot. The similarities are striking. Harlan Ellison himself is quoted as saying, if you took the first three minutes of the Terminator, they are not only similar, but exact. The story goes on that Cameron admitted to this in an unpublished issue of Starlog magazine. However, as far as I can find, Harlan Ellison is the only source of that particular knowledge. Seeing as Orion Pictures settled out of court with Ellison, I'm going to tend to believe Harlan on this one. Cameron, on the other hand, calls Ellison a parasite. I'd rather you make the decision for yourself. While typically, one is expected to pull inspiration from others into their own art, where is the line between homage and plagiarism? Since we're already on a Cameron and Terminator thing, let's just keep going. I'll skip through a long, boring history of property rights transfer and just skip to the important parts. The official rights to the property of the Terminator revert back to James Cameron next year in 2019. Cameron had absolutely nothing to do with Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines, Terminator Salvation, and of course, uh, the last atrocity, Terminator Genesis. That should come as really no surprise. I think any fan of Terminator 2, which is basically anybody born before 1985, has always wanted to see that next movie that really should have come after Terminator 2, the real Terminator 3. None of that Terminatrix nonsense where basically an advanced endoskeleton is covered in T-1000-like liquid metal skin that just reeks of lazy writing to me. If we're supposed to believe that we can send back complex weapons by simply covering them in the mimetic poly-alloy that the T-1000 is made of, then why can't we just send him, along with the TX, just ridiculously futuristic weapons covered in some shiny liquid metal shell? I mean, if it's gonna work for the whole fucking Terminator, why not a futuristic weapon? Like, uh, kind of like... What's some of them other future weapons we got? Phased plasma rifle in the 40 watt range. Yeah. Like that. So anyway, now that Cameron has the rights back, he's assembled the old band back together of Arnold as the T-800 and Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor. Now, as of right now, there are no plot details other than this film is supposed to be a direct sequel to Terminator 2 Judgment Day. So, where does that leave us anyway? I'm guessing Arnold giving me the thumbs up as he's being lowered into the molten steel didn't actually stop the impending War of the Machines, and now, since T3, T4, and T5 can be deservedly thrown in the garbage plot-wise, what kind of film can we now be looking at, and how will the events of Terminator 2 directly impact what we're supposed to see now on film 30 years later? John and Sarah are seemingly winding down a dark road, not knowing where it leads as we wrap up the theatrical release of the film. As far as they know, they've taken care of everything Cyberdyne Systems would ever need to create Skynet. They blew up the entirety of the Cyberdyne building and even took out Dyson's home computer. The original T-800 arm and the CPU were both destroyed in the steel. We all saw that. Arnold even reminded us that there was still one more chip as he pointed to his own head. With all the evidence of futuristic killer cyborgs destroyed, along with the company that is supposed to create them, what's left to generate a judgment day? If there truly is no fate but what we make, 
didn't Sarah and John just create their own fate? A fate without a looming nuclear war? A fate without a decades-long, if not everlasting, existence of eternal destruction, famine, and death? How could we still have a Terminator movie after all of that? Well, here's what I'm thinking. During the big battle in the steel mill, the T-1000 manages to get the better of Arnold and forces his arm between two churning gears. His wrist brings the gears to a halt, and he manages to pry his hand off and break free. The gears once again spin up, however, the fate of the now severed futuristic robot hand is now sitting on the floor, I guess, somewhere of some steel mill, where the police should be by at any fucking second now because an 18-wheeler full of liquid nitrogen just plowed into the side of it like 10 fucking minutes ago. Just saying, the response time of the local police is abysmal. Also, while all the records and research was definitely destroyed over at the Cyberdyne building, there's still an entire office full of people who were working on all sorts of projects who are still very much alive and remember exactly what they were working on. Since the police had an epic standoff over at Cyberdyne, they would surely connect that both the Cyberdyne incident and the steel mill incident are indeed related. Investigation turns up the Terminator hand and there you go, now we have another Judgment Day. Delayed, I would imagine, seeing as how much damage was done, and they do seem to lack the CPU, which was a major step forward for Cyberdyne according to Dyson. Will the story follow a much older Sarah and John? Or will the setting similarly be a mid-90s Los Angeles? I had to suspend my disbelief over the explanation of how the story went from both sides had only one chance to send a soldier back, to both sides suddenly had two chances it seems, whoops. So if we're going to go straight from Terminator 2 into this new film, and of course we're going to see Arnold, and there's going to be a bad guy, am I to expect that somehow both the Resistance and Skynet had yet a third opportunity to send back saviors for themselves? How can that be? How can that possibly make any sense? Does it? What if I said the answer was yes? Let's just say for fun that we include the last three Terminator films as some kind of pseudo-canon. Something that takes place, no matter what variable turns up, is Judgment Day. Every single time Skynet sends back a Terminator, it fails. Every time the Resistance sends back a savior, he succeeds. So how do we always end up at Judgment Day? Regardless of what actual day it happens to fall on the calendar, but Judgment Day always does manage to become a part of the current timeline, no matter which timeline we decide to go down. Now for me, this sounds exactly like the kind of situation in which a tangent universe is formed. Something happened where an offshoot branch of a current timeline occurred, and you now need to figure out what went wrong and how to stop it or else it will always be. The easiest way to describe this would probably be Back to the Future 2. They have to stop Biff from receiving the almanac or we're going to end up inside of this alternative 1985. Similarly, we can look at Donnie Darko and the airplane engine. The severed engine creates this tangent universe which then must be corrected. Donnie must choose to stay in bed and die. Similarly, this is exactly what John Connor needs to do. He needs to die. And he needs to die 
before he ever has a chance to lead the resistance because, after all, that's what started this whole mess in the first place. The only reason that John Connor is alive at all in the first place is because Kyle Reese was sent back in time specifically to be his father. What exactly did Kyle Reese say in the first film? I'll tell you what he said. He asked me to forcibly insert the lifeline exercise cart into my anus. <laughs> if that simple event never took place, there would be zero reason for Skynet to ever send a Terminator back in the first place, which leads Cyberdyne to discovering the original arm and chip. If that simple event never happened, there would be no reason for Skynet to send a Terminator back leading to the original arm and original chip that Cyberdyne finds in the first place. The Tangent Universe here is created when Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor conceive John. That is now the only reason Skynet has any desire at all to travel through time. Everything else that happened in the past, they were fine with it. But the moment that there is a John Connor, that is now the definitive point in time that they must travel to. So, should the original Terminator had succeeded back in 1984 and eliminated Sarah Connor, in turn, Skynet would have essentially defeated itself, invalidating its only reason to even be there. If there's no John Connor, there is no threat. If there is no threat, there is no need to send back a machine. If there is no machine, there are no machines. John needs to realize this before he becomes the threat. He needs to close this tangent universe, which is his own very existence. John Connor needs to make the ultimate sacrifice to defeat Skynet once and for all and save all of mankind. He needs to die. Originally scheduled to come out in the summer of 2019, Terminator 6, directed by Deadpool's Tim Miller, will now be released on November 22nd, putting it in competition that weekend with an as-of-yet-untitled Marvel Fox movie. has to end here. No, don't do it, don't go! I order you not to go, I order you not to go! Jesus fucking Christ, John, all right. All right, I'll stay. But we're gonna change topics, we're gonna move on. Jesus. One of my favorite documentaries of all time is The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. It follows the story of Billy Mitchell, the world record holder for the classic arcade version of Donkey Kong, along with his underdog challenger, Steve Weeb. Along with Donkey Kong, Mitchell also holds the world record for a perfect game of Pac-Man. Every single pellet, every single ghost, every single fruit, all on one life. That is beyond impressive. Now, you do keep hearing me say world record, but world record says who? Well, since 1984, video game records organization Twin Galaxies, headed by gaming enthusiast Walter Day, has been keeping official tabs for the Guinness Book of World Records. Twin Galaxies has strict rules regarding records submitted for consideration. In the case of the arcade version of Donkey Kong, the score must be attained on an actual original arcade machine. No remakes, no consoles, it has to be the guts of an original machine. 
During the course of events in the film King of Kong, a few of Billy Mitchell's own core beliefs come back to rub hot sauce all over his ass and bite it. The first being included in the opening scene of the documentary, in which Billy states, What competitive gaming? When you want to attach your name to a world record? When you want your name written into history? You have to pay the price. Another thing that Billy talks about, which is supposed to be a core principle of Twin Galaxies, is that these records are needed to be done on original equipment. This becomes a giant plot point in the film, when some of Billy's goons go over to challenger Steve Weeb's own home and enter his garage to inspect his Donkey Kong machine for shenanigans. That's what happens when Steve Weeb submits a score, but what about Billy Mitchell himself? In the film, we're shown Billy handing off a tape to be delivered during an official score attempt by Weeb. Weeb, by the way, has been doing the honorable thing this entire time by making sure he's playing on official hardware, he's showing up at officially sanctioned competitions, uh, even ones that are hosted by Twin Galaxies and Walter Day. Billy Mitchell made Twin Galaxies famous and vice versa. It was very much in the best interests of both parties to participate quid pro quo. In the film, we do get to enjoy a happy ending as Steve eventually overtakes Billy and captures the Donkey Kong world record. The success of the 2007 film re-sparks interest in not only retro gaming on a whole, but Donkey Kong in particular. And in 2010, Weeb's record was broken by Hank Chien, and then again later by Wes Copeland and Robbie Lakeman. Steve Weeb hasn't charted since 2010, but he did hold the title of being only the second person ever to reach a million point game in Donkey Kong. The first person was Billy Mitchell, obtained only one year earlier. The Billy Mitchell character of the late 2000s had faded away from a life I can barely remember when suddenly his name pops up in front page headlines only days ago. Twin Galaxies announced it had officially disqualified Mitchell's Donkey Kong scores after finding that he had been using emulation software and not actual arcade machines to achieve some of his records, which is a clear violation of Twin Galaxies' rules. Now, I'm not sure why this didn't seem to be an issue for them when Billy submitted a videotape score during the filming of King and Kong, but at least they're handling it now, 11 years later. Since Twin Galaxies is the official video game authority for Guinness, Billy has also lost his Guinness World Records along with Twin Galaxies. We've had this to say about the disqualification from an interview in Variety magazine. The more I thought about it from the King of Kong days, it all seems to make sense now. All the things that were happening at the time, like why he didn't come out to play me, and why he was inciting whose records were going to be authenticated, and whose were going to be dropped. King of Kong referenced that he was a referee and on the board of directors. When that leaked out, it started to make more sense. In my opinion, Steve is dead on. I applaud Twin Galaxies and Guinness for taking that step, but for me, that's not going to be enough. It's absolutely clear that since Twin Galaxies was more than happy to collude with Billy for over 30 years at this point, I can only find them just as accountable as Billy when it comes to the legitimacy of actual world record-setting video game scores. We've heard about the Billy Mitchell story, but what of the others we haven't heard about? If Twin Galaxies can't be bothered to even verify the legitimacy of the scores that they themselves provide to Guinness as official world records, you know what? It's time for somebody else to come along and take these reins. 
The treatment of Steve Weeb alone versus that of Billy Mitchell by Twin Galaxies and Walter Day 11 years ago should have been enough to remove them from official record keeping. And now that this Billy Mitchell controversy has finally been brought to light, the fact that Guinness will keep Twin Galaxies on as official record keeper is simply a joke. The corruption, the favoritism, the poor form of Twin Galaxies should be more than enough at this point for Guinness to simply move on and seek new representation for the competitive gaming community. Gamers grind way too hard to have their legitimate records stolen away from them by a mullet-wearing hot sauce cunt who cheats the system while stomping the little guy's face in with his boot. Guinness previously removed the records of Atari player Todd Rogers last January after his record score in the Atari 2600 game Dragster was deemed impossible and removed from Twin Galaxies leaderboards. This record had been sitting on Twin Galaxies for ages without them ever bothering to truly prove if the record was possible. Twin Galaxies should be stripped of any official record keeping, and Walter Day, although he has sold the company since, should be ashamed of himself for using and exploiting a fledgling gaming community to further his own interests and honor his hometown as some pseudo-birthplace of gaming. As of this episode, Billy Mitchell has not responded to any requests for comment, neither has Walter Day. I also reached out to Walter Day myself and have not heard back. Hey Walter, let's apply some of your own wisdom to this very situation. One lie is one too many Two lies are more than plenty But three lies I'll probably be saying Goodbye, love, I'll be be saying One lie is one too many Two lies are more than plenty But three lies I'll probably be saying Goodbye, love. I'll pro probably be saying ba 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 bum ba bum ba da bum ba da bum ba 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 bum ba bum ba ba bum ba bum. You must be on time for a thousand years for makeup every time you're late. Boom 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 boom, and you must be a joker for a million years to makeup for each heart you break. Oh, didn't I tell you, 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 never not to lie? Didn't I, didn't I tell you, 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 never not to lie? Cause one lie is one too many, two lies are more than plenty, but three lies I'll probably be saying goodbye, love. Probably be saying bum bum is one too many. Two lies are more than plenty, but three lies are probably be saying. Thanks for listening to this third episode of Pancakes House. The show can be heard on iTunes, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and more. For questions, comments, or advertising opportunities, feel free to reach me at pancakeshousepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at tupancakeshouse, or on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash pancakeshouse for access to exclusive material and extras. See you next week. That's a, that's a fountain of conversation, man. That's a geyser. I mean, whoa, daddy, stand back, man. <laughs> <laughs>